Judges chapter 3. It's the chapter we're going to be looking at this morning. Remember, we're entering the, the second section of the book of Judges. The first section kind of was an introduction talking about how this, this, these Israelites went apostate, how they fell away from the faith. And now, as we come to chapter 3, we begin a cycle that we're going to talk about in a moment, kind of a cycle of sin and servitude and salvation. We'll, again, we'll talk about that in a moment. But I'm going to read the story of the second judge in this cycle of, of, of sin and God's salvation, uh, a judge named Ehud. And this is kind of a, a rough story, so we're going to have kind of an interesting time talking through this this morning. Uh, but if you would, in honor of God, stand with me as we read about Ehud and his deliverance, uh, God's deliverance of his people three, through this judge, Ehud, beginning in verse 12. It says in verse 12, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he rose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. And then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, Surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. (coughs) Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Assyria. And when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him, from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And so they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. The land had rest for 80 years. You may be seated. May God be encouraged, may we be encouraged through God's word 
this morning. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, again, we do echo what's already been prayed this morning, that you would be gracious to us and help us to understand your word. Lord, as we turn to this section of the book of Judges, uh, we see again not just Israel's need for a king, but our need for a king as well. And so, Father, please be gracious to us in providing us with your son, Jesus. We thank you that you have provided him for us, and we pray that you be gracious in continuing to help us understand that provision, receiving him through faith. We pray this in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a uh, very happy Groundhog's Day to you. A few weeks ago, uh, Tate Westbrook mentioned to me that Groundhog's Day was on a Sunday this year and told me that he hoped I was prepared to make sure I worked the movie Groundhog Day into the sermon if I knew what was good for me. <laughs> now, for those of you who may not know, uh, the movie Groundhog Day stars Bill Murray as Phil Connors, a weatherman, and Scooter the Groundhog as Punxsutawney Phil. The movie's about the weatherman reliving the same day over and over again. I I told Tate, I was on it, I told him I planned on repeating my introduction (laughs) in honor of the movie. And Tate replied with something like, there's no way you don't have the guts. Well, very happy Groundhog's Day to you. (laughs) A few weeks ago, Tate Westbrook mentioned to me that Groundhog's Day was on a Sunday this year and told me that he hoped that I was prepared to make sure I worked the movie Groundhog Day in the sermon if I knew what was good for me. For those of you who may not know, the movie Groundhog Day stars Bill Murray as weatherman Phil Connors and Scooter the Groundhog as Punxsutawney Phil. It's about a, a man, weatherman, reliving the same day over and over again. I told Tate I was on it. I planned on repeating the introduction in honor of the movie. And Tate replied with something like, there's no way you don't have the guts. I hope that's sufficient <laughs> to get me. No, no, no. We, we don't applaud secular movies, Okay. Tate texted, finally a decent sermon. (laughs) Now, here's the deal. I would not do that if it wasn't appropriate to the text this morning, okay? But it actually is providentially very appropriate because we are dealing with a section of Scripture that is very repetitive. Like the movie Groundhog Day, the same thing happens over and over again to the people of Israel, there's this, this cycle in which they, they find themselves, a cycle with no escape. And yet, unlike the movie Groundhog Day, where the character, if you haven't seen it, undergoes some sort of transformation for the better, what we see in the book of Judges is, is a cycle that continues again and again and again, but it's a downward spiral of a cycle. It gets worse and worse. In fact, look at Judges chapter 2. And we'll see how it's, how it's set up, how this, in the, in the introduction, the narrator lets us know what's going to take place. He begins by, by telling us, 
and we looked at this a little bit last week about what happened with the, the people of Israel and how they fell into apostasy. And because they fell into apostasy, here's the cycle that takes place. First of all, there's, there's sin. There's sin. You look at verse 13. And in verse 13, it says, they abandoned the Lord, their gods, and they served the Baals and the Asherah. So here's a little bit of a diagram here. Heather, if you go ahead and put this, this little uh, diagram here. We first of all see that there's, there's sin, right? So that happens in verse 13. And then what takes place, there's servitude. It says, the anger of the Lord is, is kindled in verse 14. He gives them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sells them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. That phraseology we're going to see over and over again through the book of Judges. And then after there is servitude, God brings about the next stage, salvation. He raises up a judge. And when we hear the word judge, we kind of think of a person in a, a black robe with a gavel who, who, who decides things. When the book of Judges is using the word judge, it's, it's describing a deliverer, a person who's a ruler who brings about salvation, generally a ruler who brings about salvation, deliverance. And God raises these judges up in order to provide salvation for his people. So there's sin, then there's servitude and salvation. If things ended there, it'd be great, right? But that's not a cycle, right? The next phase is sin again. It brings us back to sin. The people, says in verse 19 of chapter 2, whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed, has transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. And we see the cycle begin again. There's a period of six cycles that take place in the book of Judges. And we see this pattern of sin, servitude, salvation, sin, servitude, salvation take place about six times in the book of Judges. And again, it gets progressively worse. And in chapter 3, we see two cycles. We see the cycle with a judge named Othniel, and then we see the cycle with a judge named Ehud. And we're going to be mostly focusing our attention on this second cycle this morning. You see, what the problem was is that the judges weren't able to change people's hearts. That they, People continued to get worse. And it continues to point to the need for God's salvation, his mercy, and the need ultimately for a king, a king who would be able to change people's hearts. So we're going to ask ourselves, as we look at the second story here in just a moment, why, why this story, you know? This is an, an earthy story. There's some, some details in it that are a little bit rough, right, for our ears. And why would God provide this story? What do we learn about him and his salvation? And here's, here's what I think it is. There's a temptation we have as we think about God sometimes to think about God as, as far removed from us. And certainly it's true that he is far above us and he's, he's far greater than we are. He's, he's more powerful than we are in ways that we can't imagine and comprehend. And so all of that's true. But sometimes as we acknowledge those things as true, we think that he is, is far removed from us, like spatially, geographically. He's not anywhere near us. He, he can't understand the emotions that we feel. And because he's so far above us intellectually, he can't understand that the thoughts that we think and the, the struggles that we have. And as we come to a story like this in Judges chapter 3, we see that God is not far removed from us. 
God is not unaware of our physical world. The physical world in which you and I live and, and the, the, the physical world that we, we touch and are a part of, God isn't somehow far removed from that. One of the early heresies that affected the Christian church was called Gnosticism. And the Gnostics believed that there was a, a great spiritual being. And this great super god had created other gods. And, and one of the gods that this super god had created was the God of the Old Testament who created the physical world. And the Gnostics believed that the physical world was bad and the spiritual world was good and we should do all that we can to escape the physical world and strive to be solely a part of the spiritual world. And so physical things were evil. Now, that is not the God of Scripture. That's not a biblical understanding of who God is. Now, in my mind, it's a very depressing concept of the universe, to have a God who's removed from the physical world. Because so much of what we struggle with and, and the things we think about and have to deal with are physical. We have to deal with the fact that we, we get sick. We have to get to, to deal with the fact that we have physical desires. You know, we have Desires for, for sexual intimacy. We have desires when we are tired to sleep. We get hungry and we want to eat. I mean, we are part, God has placed us in a physical world. And to have a God who's removed from those desires and those struggles would be very depressing. But we come to a story like Judges 3, and we're going to see God is not removed from the physical world. In fact, here's the central idea that I want us to think about. God is not detached from the physical world, but it enters into it in order to secure your salvation. God is not detached from the physical world, but instead he enters into it in order to secure your salvation. We're going to talk about how that's true and why that is so important as we look at this story in Judges chapter 3, this, this earthy story. You know, there's some language in here that, that seems a little bit crude to us, and and kids, you know, I know sometimes it's hard to pay attention in church, but, you know, where are my middle school guys, okay? You know, middle school guys, this, this story has, like, a spy, an assassination, and bathroom humor. I mean, this, <laughs> if I can't keep your attention this morning, that's on me, all right? So uh, here's, here's, uh, here's what I'm going to do. I want to, first of all, talk about the first cycle of Judges, and then move into the second cycle of Judges more and more in depth. But the first cycle is this. It's, it's Othniel, right? Othniel and the oppressors are the Mesopotamians, right? And there's, again, this cycle of sin, servitude, salvation. Look at it with me, if you would, very quickly. Verse 7, there's sin as the cycle begins, this first cycle. The people of Israel do what's evil in the sight of the Lord, verse 7 says. They, they forget the Lord of the, their God, and they serve the Baals and the Asheroth. And so they're drawn to these pagan cults, these cults where there's immorality. Then what happens? Servitude, next part of the cycle. Verse 8, anger of the Lord kindled against Israel. He sells them into the hand of Cushan Reshethim, king of, the, of Mesopotamia. And the, the people of Israel served Cushan Reshethim eight years. Then verse 9, salvation. Lord as the people cry out, the, the Lord raises up a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who we've encountered before in our studies. 
the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. And we'll talk more about the Spirit of the Lord coming upon these judges later. But, but what it means here is that this deliverance doesn't come about from the people. It comes about from God. And then, of course, unfortunately, the cycle ends with him falling back into sin. And that brings us to this second cycle. And so look at verse 12 with me. As we look at Ehud and the Moabites. So the judge here is Ehud. And the people who are doing the oppressing are the Moabites. And we're going to see here the nearness of God's salvation. And as we, as we talk, I want to talk through the story and then draw out a couple of truths. And, and as we read this, let's, let's ask ourselves, why this story? You know, why would God include this story? And, and more particularly, why these details? Why go into these details as he tells us the story of Ehud? And hopefully we'll understand that as we, we go through the sermon and the text. Story begins with sin, right? Verse 12. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And uh, then there is servitude, the next part of the cycle. It says that God, in response to that, strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab. And who are the Moabites? Remember, the Moabites are the descendants of Abraham's nephew, Lot. Uh, we've encountered the Noabites, the Moabites before in our story. We, we saw them in the book of Numbers whenever they opposed the people of Israel and the king there tried to get uh, Balaam to, to curse the Israelites. God had told the Israelites they were not going to be able to uh, conquer the land of Moab. But instead, what's happening here is because of the sin of his people, God is raising up the Moabites and he's allowing them to enter into the Israelites' territory, into the, the area around the Benjaminites and the Ephraimites. So those tribes are the ones that are most, uh, most affected by Moab's intrusion here. It says that uh, Eglon gathers to himself the Ammonites, the Amalekites, so it's other people engaged in this, and they go, and they defeat Israel, and they take, place, uh, take possession of the city of Palms, which is probably Jericho. And so there the people are in subjection to the Moabites for 18 years. You can imagine how long 18 years is. 18 years is almost as long as it was since 9-11. So you can imagine uh, an enemy coming and, and for 18 years being in subjection. That's, that's, more than, that's longer than some of you have been alive. It's longer than a lot of you can remember. Even if you've been alive longer, a little bit more than 18 years. 18 years is most of my adult life. 18 years is an incredibly long time to live under oppression. And yet that's what's taking place for the Israelites. And so what happens? Salvation, the next part of the cycle. The people of Israel, verse 15, they cry out to the Lord. And just like it's God who had sovereignly brought about their servitude, it's also God who sovereignly provides a savior, a deliverer. And the deliverer that he provides here is a guy named Ehud. What do we know about him? We know he's a Benjaminite, so he's part of this, this group that's been affected by Eglon and his minions being there in his land. And we know that Ehud is, the word that's used there is left-handed. It, it can mean ambidextrous. So w whatever the case, it means that this guy Ehud had the ability to be deadly with his left hand. And so he is a person who is selected by the Benjaminites to take the tribute that they owed the king to the king. And so Ehud goes on this journey, but not only does he take the tribute, he also takes a sword. It's a man with a plan. 
He takes a sword or a dagger about a foot and a half long, double-edged, and he places it on his right thigh. And why is that significant? Because if you're a, a, a person engaged in combat with another person at this time, you've expected them to, to be right-handed, and yet uh, Eglon is, or Ehud is left-handed, and so he places his, his dagger in a place where a person might not, if they're being careless, might not check for weaponry. He brings this tribute to Eglon. Now, verse 17 tells us a little bit about Eglon, king of Moab. What does it tell us about Eglon? He is a character, by the way, this is not a politically correct story, okay? The, the, the wordage used, the, the way that they're describing the characters, this is not a, a kind story to Eglon. He's this, he's this large, ridiculous guy in the story. His name means bull or, or calf. It's a word that sounds like rotund, round in the Hebrew language. And, and the word, when it says that he's fat, that word fat is a term that, that's used for a fattened calf or sheep for slaughter. And so here's this, this buffoon of a king, the enemy of Israel, who is, who's this buffoon who is ready for slaughter. And the Israelites, as they heard this story told, how would have they responded to that? They would have enjoyed it. Here's our enemy, this guy who has been oppressing us for 18 years, and he's made to look like this, this buffoon, this, this ridiculous person. Ehud delivers the tribute, and then he and the others who are with him leave, and then at some point he says, you guys go on ahead, I'm going to go back. And so he goes back into the, the king's building that he's living in here, and, and kind of get a picture of this. This is kind of what we think the building looked like. There would have been this, this first entrance room, and it would have been kind of an open room, and you would have, uh, Ehud would have come into that, that room and been greeted, and then he would have gone into what we call maybe like an audience hall, a little bit of a bigger room that was enclosed, and as he walked into the audience hall, he would have turned and there would have been like a, a raised area where the king sat, kind of like a, a throne room. Here they call it a, a cool room. I think what they're talking about is an elevated room, kind of a, a throne room. So he walks into this first area, then he walks into the second area. He looks up and there's where the king of Moab, Eglon, is, is seated. So he walks in. And, he tell, and there would have been attendants around in there. And he, he tells the king, I, I have a message for you. And the king, very foolishly, tells his uh, subjects, silence the attendants. He's a very, the, the king is a fool throughout this whole story, right? He, has, he, has, he says that, everyone leaves. Ehud claims that he has this message. And the, the text tells us, that, the, that Ehud came to him, and so he says he's the cool roof chamber. I think the, the, a better translation for that is a, this, this elevated throne area. So Ehud goes up the steps from the audience hall into the throne area, and Ehud is sitting on this, this, this throne, and or Eglon is, and Ehud says, I, I have a message from God for you, and, and Eglon gets up out of his seat, and it's kind of a picture of this, this large lumbering fella, and he, he leans forward, and Ehud, and the, the picture here is incredibly graphic, right? He reaches with his left hand, he takes the sword from his right thigh, and 
there's this picture that the narrator gives us, and you can almost hear the sound. I mean, it's just it's disgusting, right? He, he takes the, the, the dagger, he, he thrusts it into the belly of this, this large buffoon of a man, and it, the, the, the fat just comes over the hilt of the dagger, and it it's so encompasses it that Eglon, uh, Ehud even, can't even pull the sword out of Eglon's belly. Uh-oh, is right. <laughs> and if that's not enough, that's what, that's what Eglon thought. <laughs> and if that's not, like, if that doesn't make him look bad enough, the narrator draws our attention to what else happened. An excrement came out. So you've got this king, an enemy of God's people, and he's made to look utterly ridiculous. He's large, he's dead, he's, full, he has, he's been revealed to literally be full of excrement, and he's just lying there dead. A, a picture of what a person who lives a, a lavish rebellion to God looks like. And notice, by the way, as you look at the text, the narrator refers to him as king, 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 over and over again. Every time he mentions it, it's the king of Moab, Eglon, king. until you get to this section, then all of a sudden he doesn't mention even his name again. He's been utterly reduced to a nobody. And you think, well, maybe the narrator is done with this poor guy. Nope, he's not. The embarrassment of this nobody is not over yet. He's not done making Eglon look foolish. It says, and, and, I, and by the way, you know, I, I think this is, I, this is supposed to be humorous for the original audience, what happens next. So, the, so Ehud makes his escape. He, he closes the doors of the roof chamber. And so, by the way, by, there would have been uh, the throne room. And, then the, and we know there's a room behind this room in which Eglon is seated. And it's probably a room in which he, well, it seems like it's a room in which he was able to relieve himself. And so that's where Ehud puts the body, or where he stabbed him. He locks the door and he makes his escape. Maybe he makes his escape through the, the flooring. Maybe, he makes his, maybe he's able to lock it from the outside. We're not quite sure. But somehow he locks this door and he makes his escape. And the locking of the doors allows him more time because what happens next? He leaves and the servants come in. And the servants see the locked door, smell something, and make some assumptions about what's going on. Okay, the king must be going to the bathroom. And then he doesn't come out. And they engage in that awkward exchange of glances that apparently has been happening for thousands of years when a person spends too long in the bathroom. <laughs> and you ask the question, should we do something? Are they okay? When should we say something? And it's, the text says it. They're embarrassed, as all of us have been, been embarrassed before, as we've been embarrassed for thousands of years when someone takes too long the bathroom. 
And eventually, they go in. And what do they see? There's their king, their lord, nameless, dead on the floor. Now, Ehud, we turn our attention to him. They, he escaped while they delayed, and he, he passes beyond the idols. He, he comes, and he escapes, and he, he sounds the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel go down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies the Moabites in your hand. And they go down after him. They seize the fords against the Moabites, and there's this, there's this amazing victory that God brings about through Ehud. It is a complete, total repudiation of the Moabites. God's purpose has been achieved. And also notice verse 31 mentions another judge, Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines. And so there's, there's another judge that's not developed, but shows us too these stories are not necessarily in chronological order. But Ehud has accomplished God's purpose. Now let's talk about two truths here. Two truths we see about God's salvation. Because, let's, let's do this thought experiment. Let's imagine that the text read this way. Let's say that the text began there in verse 12, the story of Ehud, and then went down to verse 14, people of Israel serve Eglon, and then you're at verse 15, people of Israel cry out, and the Lord raised up from them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man, the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, king of Moab. And then what if verses 16 through 25 had been condensed into just a sentence and Ehud king killed the king of Moab, Eglon? And then you pick up in verse 26, or really even uh, verse 27, he arrived and, and went back to the hill country of Ephraim, sounded the alarm. Like, it tells us the same details, right? There are many times in the Bible where it just says, you know, so-and-so killed so-and-so, and, -so and, it, and it's over. Why go into this level of detail? I mean, personally, I, I don't really enjoy violent stories you know, that's, or movies. Um, I don't enjoy bathroom humor, right? I mean, it's like one of my lowest forms of humor. There's like chicken crossing the road jokes, bathroom humor, and knock-knock jokes. I mean, and that's just because I had a lot of little kids who couldn't tell them well. Um, it's not an enjoyable form of humor here, but, but here it's used with a theological purpose. Why? Why does he go into this level of detail? Well, there, there's two truths about God's salvation that I think are communicated by the earthiness of the story, and, and there's an earthiness to God's salvation. It's not crass. It's not vulgar. Let's, let's be careful here. Let's not cross the line. But it's earthy in the sense that it's aware of the physical world, and it understands it's in the physical world where salvation happens, and it's, it's interacting, the story is interacting with this physical world. Here's the first thing that I think that, that we see in the story about God's salvation and, and why it's so graphic in its detail. Number one, those who oppose God are humiliated. The people of Israel think that it's a good idea to become like the Canaanites. Now, Eglon is not technically a Canaanite, he's a Moabite, but, but the purpose of Judges is to talk about the Canaanization of the people, how they became like the people around them. And the people of Israel have this view, hey, this is a glorious life. I mean, we're, 
we're Israelites coming to this land, and, and, and we want to be like the Canaanites. They have these cool gods. They have these cool rituals. I mean, they have a lot of fun in their worship and this immorality. They know what's going on. They're the sophisticated ones. We want to become like them. And this text says, really? Like, that's what you want? You want to be this, this fattened calf for the slaughter? This guy is, is not a wise person to emulate. He's a person who is dead on the floor. His, and what's inside him has been exposed, if, if, if you know what I mean. That's what the text is saying, I believe. We see this over and over again in Scripture. Those, those who are prideful will be brought down. Those who oppose God will be torn down. Those who are humble and lowly, God himself will lift up. Second Peter talks about how um, in the last days, scoffers will come with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where is the promise of his coming? You know, where is God? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago when the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world's the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. He says, don't, under, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you he talks, he goes on, he says, the day of the world will come like a thief. He says, since all these things are be dissolved, the physical world is be dissolved and then recreated, renewed, what sort of people ought you to be? Because uh, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Those who oppose God are, are humiliated. And, and as we think about our response to the, Canaaniz the canonization of Israel, we recognize you and I also face a temptation towards canonization. We also face a temptation to becoming like the world around us, loving the things that the world loves, having the same values as the world around us, having the same idols as the world around us. We don't want to be fools. If we, like the Israelites, believe what the Canaanites teach about the family, the material world, sexuality, the soul, worship of God, we've become fools. We're the fools in the fable if we believe that we can in, in, in the fables that we hear about, if we, if we believe that we can pursue joy as we attempt to adopt the, unquestioningly the values of our culture, even, even conservative culture, we believe that we can adopt those, those, those values unquestioningly instead of the values of Christ, we're fools. We don't want to become Canaanites. That's what the story, one of the truths that the story is telling us. Well, here's, here's a second truth that the story, I believe, is telling us. The second truth is that God enters into the physical world to save us. 
God enters into the physical world to save us. Ehud is a temporary deliverer. But he points us to a coming deliverer who is also going to enter the physical world. And it's not, you know, unlike Ehud and the other judges here, he is going to be able to save us completely for eternity. Now, as I think about that thought, here, here's a couple other related thoughts, kind of three thoughts here that I think are important for us to meditate on as we think about application. One, I, I think it's important as we come to this story, and, and I don't think I'm going beyond the text here too greatly, I think it's important for us to understand, look, God is aware of the physical world, and God is mindful of our physical needs. God is aware that we live in a physical world, and God is aware of the physical needs that we have. God cares about the physical world. He enters into physical events, even the most sensitive of physical aspects of your life are not beneath his notice. And, and maybe, maybe there are some physical struggles that you're going through that, that are even too sensitive to talk about, right? You know, maybe you have just some sort of, of thing you're struggling with that, you know, it's, it's the sort of thing that whenever you go to, to get uh, medical help at the, the pharmacy section of, of Kroger, you're, you're hoping that no one you know comes by, right, and sees what you have in your cart right now because it's kind of a, an embarrassing aspect of being a physical human being with physical problems. I hope no one sees this, right? And I think, of course, there's appropriate sensitivity to those things, but at the same time, I think as we come to a story like this and, and stories throughout Scripture that are, that are earthy, not, not vulgar, but earthy and deal with the physical world, we understand that God is aware that we are physical beings. He's aware that we have physical needs. God's aware of that aspect of your life, and, and even, even there cares about us and is working through that to, to sanctify us and to care for us. Number two, another thought here, God the Son entered the physical world and provides salvation for, for physical beings, which you and I, by the way, will always be. Do you know what? You and I are always going to be physical beings. We're going to die, but we're going to be, to be resurrected unless the Lord comes back first. And we're going to be resurrected as what? As these spirit beings? No. We are always going to be physical. And God himself became a human physical being, will continue as a physical human being into eternity, entered that physical world and provided salvation for physical beings. Here's how, here's how Colossians 1 describes it. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And now you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled. How? Or where? In his body of flesh. So here's God, the fullness of God, Jesus Christ, who, who created the entire universe, who, who brought into being everything that's in being, and yet what did he do? He became physical and reconciled us through his physical body for what purpose? 
in order, what purpose? In order, he did this in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's kind of the third thought I think is important to think about here. God now, God now enables you to live in a fallen physical world and live in complete obedience as you await the fullness of redemption. Let me say that again. God now enables you, you who are a physical being, he enables you through his salvation to live in this fallen physical world, but yet live in complete obedience as you await the fullness of redemption. I think we see something as we go through these different cycles, we see God saves, God saves, God saves. But there's kind of a, a different emphasis in each of them. And this, the earthiness of this one, what we see is that God's salvation, God enters into the physical world and deals with the physical world in his salvation. As we think about the ultimate salvation found in our ultimate judge, our ultimate king, Jesus Christ, we see that Christ enters in the physical world, provides us salvation so that right now, in this moment, as we're in a fallen world, we have the ability to live in this physical fallen world in a way that is completely obedient to God. I don't have to wait until eternity to live in obedience to God with my physical body. Today, now, I can begin to walk in obedience to God. Why? Because of my deliverer, Jesus Christ, because of who he is and the salvation that he's provided, and now I am in him. And so in him, my deliverer, who was the fullness of God, became fully man, lived in a fallen world with perfect obedience. Now in him, I can think about my sickness rightly. I can think about my sexual desires rightly. I can think about my weariness rightly and live rightly in those areas as well. In other words, I don't have to wait until the future thinking that well, maybe I'm become some, some spiritual being off in the future. Now God is providing me salvation through my deliverer, Jesus Christ. And in my sickness, in my weariness, in my physical hunger, I can walk in obedience to God through faith. I was talking with, with someone recently, and we were talking about how it, it's, it's somewhat scary to, to think about death, right? You know, right now, uh, many of us feel relatively healthy. There are, you know, there are a million different ways my physical life on earth in th this phase can end. You know, there's a, at least a million different ways I could die, right? And I don't know. It's, it's not a choose-your-own-adventure thing. I mean, there's... There's a lot of choice and there's a lot of, there's a lot of, it's kind of scary to think about. And it's not going to be all of those, it's going to be one, the future. We're bound by this physical body. And there's, 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 a, there's a clock ticking. And it's not just the hardness of thinking about the end of life, it's, it's the hardness of thinking about all the other physical aspects of the life in which we live. But, but here's, here's the point. God isn't distant from that. He's not unaware of our physical burdens. These things have not escaped his attention. He's in these things as he has always been in the physical world. He's aware of our suffering. He will someday bring it to, end, to an end. He's providing salvation for us even now. God 
is not detached from the physical world. He enters into it in order to secure our salvation. In other words, God is near. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the nearness of your salvation. We recognize that that your nearness to us is not because we have come close to you, but because you have come close to us, specifically in the provision of your son, Jesus. We would ask that you would allow us, through your grace, to be delivered from sin and to walk as you walked, as your son walked, in obedience to you. We pray this for your glory, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.